So if you would, uh, please take your copies of God's Word with me and turn them to Luke chapter 2. And this morning we're looking specifically at verse 7. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Last week, we considered God's jaw-dropping sovereignty uh, from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And this morning, uh, we're going to focus on a way in an animal trough. Uh, from cha Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Just a little play on words. Instead of a way in a manger, a way in an animal trough. And I think you'll understand why I've, I've titled it that as we move forward in the message. But Luke chapter 2, verse 7, says this to us this morning. And she, that of course being Mary, so Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, please bow with me just for a moment in prayer as we seek the Lord's help in coming to his word. Heavenly Father, we, we know that apart from your spirit, uh, we are unable to understand the things of, of God's word, uh, that we need you, we need your help, and so we're just crying out to you now that you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word now as we as we open up your scriptures that you would teach us uh, glorious truths about yourself and your son and, and about ourselves and that we would grow much in the grace and knowledge of you this morning help me father as i preach to preach that which is faithful to your word and i just ask that it would bring much glory to your name and good for your people and we pray this all in jesus name amen <clears throat> Well, I want you, if you would, to please picture in your mind a, a, a children's Christmas pageant. And think about what happens. Of course, Mary and Joseph uh, arrive in Bethlehem on cue, uh, needing a place to stay. Uh, they arrive at the, at the local inn, uh, but they are rejected by an angry innkeeper who pointing at a sign says, no vacancy, just like the sign says, no vacancy. And so Mary and Joseph uh, kind of hurry along, uh, knocking on a bunch of doors uh, until finally someone lets them sleep in their barn or their stable or, or something like that. And I just want to ask the question, is this the way the birth of Jesus took place? And before, before I go any farther, I want to say that I know some of you are still reeling. Some of you are still trying to pick up the pieces from my sermon series roughly a year ago when we walked through John 14 and, and I, I shattered your dream of, of living or dwelling in a golden mansion in heaven forever. Well, brace yourself because there's a good chance this morning I'm going to maybe burst a few more bubbles of this time concerning Jesus' birth. And Actually, this is the real reason why I'm preaching from home this morning. It has nothing to do with my possible exposure from COVID. It has everything to do with the fact that I'm afraid of violent protests and, and violent uh, rioting from, from my daring to mess with the old familiar Christmas story. <laughs> and of course, I'm, I'm joking, kind of, uh, but in, in, in all seriousness, while I enjoy a good Christmas pageant, I, I do think it's dangerous, it's very dangerous to allow the account of Jesus' birth to be hijacked by fiction. 
And just as bad, and, and maybe if not worse, is when we allow the Christmas story to be hijacked by sentimentalism and romanticism. Let me explain what I mean by that. I, I have seen pictures of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ that are so serene and warm and cozy uh, that I think to myself, you know, I, I wouldn't mind staying there for a night or two. That, that looks pretty inviting. That's like a pretty great place to stay. And I think you know what I mean. You, you see these pictures of Mary and Joseph sitting there watching a little baby, and a baby Jesus sleeping quietly in this nice, clean, wooden manger. Sometimes there's a glowing light emanating from Jesus. I don't really know why, but sometimes there is. Uh, the straw is fresh and warm, and, and overhead the, the stars are twinkling, and the nearby animals are resting contently, and it's all very warm and inviting, and it makes us feel happy. But it's also quite dangerous. It's dangerous because it makes us miss what really happened that night. It bears little connection to reality, and, and honestly, if we're not careful, it leads to a superficial Christianity that costs us nothing, but, but hey, it makes us feel all warm and gooey inside. And I'm sorry, but Christianity does not exist to make you and I feel all warm and gooey inside. Our world today does not need warm and gooey and sentimental Christianity. Our world needs the gospel. And Luke chapter 2, verse 7 is a powerful picture of the gospel. It is also a powerful picture of discipleship, of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might be surprised that I would say that. And to help us see that this morning, I'm, I'm going to ask us to wrestle with this question. Maybe you've never wrestled with it before, but it's this. Why... Did Jesus have to be born in a manger? Think about it. If, if you had all the power and you could choose anywhere for your beloved son to be born, would you choose a manger? And of course, we believe in the sovereignty of God. And we know that all of this has happened because God wanted it to happen this way. If God wanted it to happen some other way, it would have happened some other way. So why? Why did God have Jesus born in a manger? And to help us answer that question, we're going to start by uh, explaining the setting. So if you have your, your church a bulletin inside there. There should be the notes on the on the flip side, or some growth group discussion questions, or questions to go over with your family on Sunday Sunday lunch. Uh, but the first point this morning is just going over the setting. The traditional scene of Mary and Joseph checking motels, of uh, being rejected by the innkeeper, and finally being able to bunk in a stable somewhere is all based on the interpretation of one word in verse seven. One word that I think has been misunderstood. It's the word that is translated in. In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it says, She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The word that is translated in, when you do just a little bit of study on it, you immediately come to see that that word means guest room. 
It does not mean inn or hotel. That, that interpretation is strengthened by the fact that Luke uses this exact same word near the end of his gospel in Luke chapter 22, verse 11. In this verse, Jesus is instructing his disciples uh, to find the Passover room, and this is what he tells them to say to the master of the house, to say to them, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? That's the same word, guest room. Where is the guest room? Uh, that, is, that word is translated in in Luke 2.7. However, it's translated guest room in Luke 22, verse 11. There is also a totally different Greek word uh, that the Bible uses, that, that Luke uses, when he wants to refer to an inn or a hotel. If you would turn to Luke chapter 10 and look at verses 34 and 35, and within those verses, uh, this is what we read, Luke chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. This is, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it says, picking up in verse 34, that he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, there's your innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Clearly, the reference in Luke chapter 10 is to a paid public lodging. That's more the equivalent today to our Holiday Inn. But it's a totally different word than that which is found in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. The word in Luke chapter 2, verse 7 does not mean inn. It means guest room. I hope that's making sense so far. I, I'm not able to see your faces, so I'm just going to have to go with it and hope and trust uh, that so far that's making sense. Now remember with me uh, the reason Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. The reason they went was because that was where Joseph's family was from. That means Joseph had lots of relatives in Bethlehem, and he had probably had lots more traveling back to Bethlehem uh, for the Roman census. Mary and Joseph were almost certainly staying at the house of relatives and were not trying to rent a room at the local hotel. So it is my opinion uh, that when we read Luke chapter 2 verse 7, this is what we should picture in our mind. What we should picture is an overcrowded home. A single room home with an animal stall under the same roof. Most households in that day were poor, and they could not afford a, a separate structure, such as a stable, for the animals. It was common practice, very, very common practice in that day, to keep their animals in the same structure, under the same roof as the humans. Archaeologists have found many houses like this, a raised level, all under the same roof, but a raised level where the people would sleep, and then a lower level where they kept the animals, again, all under one roof. So what I believe Luke is probably describing is a setting where the main room was so overcrowded, and there was no place for them to lay the baby except in the manger 
over with the animals. Luke chapter 2 verse 18 I think supports this view. I don't want to make too much of that verse because I can see as I think about it how it can be interpreted differently but it does state that when the shepherds arrive later that same night telling their story of the angelic visitation uh, that Luke appears to report the shepherds appear to report that there were others present in the room when Mary and Joseph were listening to the to the report from the shepherds so in Luke chapter 2:18 we read this all who heard it notice the word all all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds just told them i think all is a strange word to use to just reference Mary and Joseph I think the word awe is a clue that Jesus was not born alone, that he was born in an overcrowded room uh, with many of his relatives around, who again were returning home because of the census. So I, I hope in my saying that, I know that's very different than what we often see and hear about the Christmas story, but I hope from hearing that that you're not mad at me, I, I hope you don't hate me uh, for ruining your nativity. Uh, but, but that's what I believe Luke chapter 2 verse 7 is presenting. Now let's, let's take a moment and talk about the manger. The manger was most likely hewn out of stone and connected to the wall of the house. Again, that was common practice in Jesus' day, and they have found many, many examples of that in archaeology. And let's not forget that the manger was a feeding trough for animals. Sometimes the word manger, we romanticize it and it's sentimental to us and we have like this idyllic setting in our mind of what it looked like, but let's be plain. The manger was an animal trough. It's where animals eat. Jesus is now laying where the animals eat. This is not a hallmark moment. This is not a moment for Instagram. This is not social media worthy. This is not sanitary. This is cruddy. It's gross. It's sad. It's in a very real sense tragic. The Savior, who is Christ the Lord, should not be in an animal trough. He should be in an opulent palace laying in a luxury crib. But again, to emphasize it, things are exactly as they are supposed to be. The God who planned this very day from eternity past, and the God who turned the heart of Caesar Augustus to have the census happen so that Mary and Joseph would go down to Bethlehem, he is not the least bit surprised that his son is now laying in a manger. In fact, that's where he wants him. He wants him in that animal trough. But why, right? That's the question. Why a manger? Why does, what does the manger teach us about the Savior who is Christ the Lord? And that's what the rest of my message is going to seek to unpack. And my answer in a nutshell is going to be that Jesus was born in a manger to prepare the way, to be the way, and to show the way of what it means to follow Jesus. So point number two this morning is prepare the way. The animal trough foreshadows the course of Jesus' life. I believe the manger sets the stage for why Jesus has come to the world and how he will be a savior for his people. This is how it's going to go for him. It will not be glamorous 
is not going to be easy. His life is going to be difficult. I think the manger is picturing that. It's setting the stage for the rest of Jesus' life. His life will be hard. It will be difficult. I think this is evidenced in many ways through Scripture. So, example, right in Luke chapter 2, verse 24, Mary and Joseph go to the temple to present Jesus uh, to the Lord, and to do so, they offer up a pair of turtle doves or two young, two young pigeons. That's, that's the poor man's sacrifice. They couldn't even afford a lamb. So, so Jesus is born into a very poor family. And don't forget, his earthly parents were from Nazareth, an area that was not held in very high regard by the locals, as even Philip himself said, and we see this in John, where he says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 3, Jesus is described as a root out of dry ground. Think of that picture, a root out of dry ground. And that he would grow to be a tender plant. The picture is of a fragile plant that if you just brushed it or a slight touch of it, and it would fall and break away. What is more, uh, to make that picture even more dreary and sad, is that this tender plant seems to be located in a barren, dry desert with the scorching sun, the burning heat, no water, uh, the, the, the chances of survival are hard, it's a very unattractive, difficult setting. And this is what Isaiah is saying the life of Jesus will be like. And then in Isaiah 53, verse 3, we read this, that Jesus will be despised and rejected by mankind. That he will be a man of suffering, familiar with pain. John chapter 1, verse 10 says that Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, these heartbreaking words, the words of the world did not know him. And it's reminiscent of Isaiah 1, 3, where it says, The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Jesus himself will say later as an adult that foxes have holes. And birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus, when he dies, and when, and he, when he's buried, he doesn't even own his own tomb. He's, he, he, he lives in a, or buried in a borrowed tomb. And then, don't forget about those swaddle, swaddling cloths that Mary wrapped him in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, where it says she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling claws. Those were long strips of bandages that, that they would wrap around the child, around and around and around. And they did this to keep the, the child or the infant's limbs straight, to, to keep them warm, to provide a bit of security, I found out this week as I was studying that, that that practice continues even today in many villages in Syria and Palestine. But what a picture of being helpless and weak. But that's not all. I think it foreshadows his death. Because remember, when Jesus is buried at the end of his life, he is once again wrapped in swaddling clothes when they lay him in the tomb. 
These strips of cloth were used to wrap the bodies of those who had died. So even in his birth, we're having pictured for us the cross and the tomb and that hardship and humiliation. Again, I think all of this hardship that I've sought to show very, very quickly, but all of this hardship is vividly pictured by the fact that Jesus is laid in a manger. It is hard to picture a more humble, vulnerable picture than that of Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And it's picturing, it's foreshadowing the course of Jesus' life and the hardships that he would follow and how he prepared the way for sinners to follow him. It shows us that Jesus did not come as a conqueror. He did not come with a, with a mighty army. He did not come to be served. But he came to serve. He came to die. To give his life as a ransom for many. So as we consider the significance of the manger and how Jesus prepared the way and it foreshadows the course of his life, it doesn't take long where we begin to see the shadow looming large over it. The shadow of the cross looming over it. The manger and the cross, the, the two bookends of Jesus' life, his beginning and his end, are perfectly suited together. The poverty and the hardship of the manger suits the shame and humiliation of the cross. And they bring together the, the manger and, and the cross, the animal trough and, and the cross, bring together one seamless message of hardship and difficulty and humility. Listen to this. Please hear it this way. The manger is teaching us that this baby laying there, swaddled in rags, will one day hang on the cross and be swaddled in my unrighteous rags. And that by faith in him and his death and his sacrifice for sin, that I and you can be swaddled in his righteousness. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says about Jesus that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been, been healed. This is incredible. This is startling humility. Remember that Jesus did not have his beginning in Bethlehem. Jesus is the eternal God who was with God and, and was God and through whom all things were made. He has no beginning and end. He is great. He is exceedingly mighty. He is the son of the most high. He is a king whose kingdom never ends. Caesar Augustus, who, who we read about and learned about last week in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, he rules over Rome as his first emperor, and he rules for 40 years, and because of his rule, the Pax Romana, or 200 years of unprecedented economic prosperity and peace, goes over all of Rome. Again, instead of, instead of Caesar Augustus, that he found Rome made of brick, he left with a made out of marble. But what Luke wants us to see is that this baby wrapped in rags, born in a lowly manger, is the true king whose reign and kingdom will put Caesar Augustus' empire to shame and make his palace look like a shack. 
But Luke also wants us to understand how Jesus will do this. He will do this by humbling himself. He will do this not with an army, not with riches, but by humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. That, I believe, is the significance of the powerless, helpless infant being born and laid in an animal trough in an insignificant town known as Bethlehem. Jesus is preparing the way for us to follow him. He is setting the course for the rest of his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And the rich there is spiritually rich. This is the point of the manger. Christ became poor that you might be made rich in him. This is how Jesus prepared the way from heaven to the feeding trough to the cross. Jesus stepped down from heaven to be swaddled in rags in an animal trough and then to be swaddled in my unrighteousness on the cross so that I who had rang up an eternal debt of sin might by faith be swaddled in his righteousness. Well, the next reason why, or the significance of the animal trough is this, to be the way. Not only did he prepare the way, but Jesus shows to be the way. The animal trough foreshadows who is invited to follow Jesus. Who can know him? Who can have a relationship with him? And just imagine with me, if, if Jesus had been born in a large palace surrounded by guards, Few would dare to seek an audience with him, but the fact that he's born in a feeding trough, who would tremble to go to a feeding trough? We tremble to go to a palace to see the king, but we don't tremble to walk into a feeding trough. To approach a king in his palace, you need to show the guards your invitation. You, you need to be instructed in proper protocol. You need to dress appropriately, and, and you need to know how to address the king and where to stand and, and all that crazy stuff. But to approach a feeding trough, you don't need any of that. You only need to be yourself. What an invitation the animal trough is to follow Jesus and to know him. As Joseph Hart wrote over 300 years ago, Come, ye sinners. Poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able, he is willing, doubt no more. And that's the picture of the manger. I remember, I don't quite remember how old I was, Seven, eight, nine, something like that. My, my family had come down to Washington, D.C. to kind of see the sights there. And uh, we saw the White House and a few other historical points of interest. But at some point, my brother, who was quite a bit older, he wandered off. He liked to take photography. And uh, <clears throat> believe it or not, <clears throat> somehow or another, he was able, uh, as he was just wandering around, he comes across this wide open field, and believe it or not, there's the president of the United States at that time, I think it was George Bush, and he's surrounded by uh, his Secret Service. And so my brother, with his camera, snaps a picture of him. 
Well, I'm sure you can imagine what the Secret Service saw about that, thought about that. Somehow they saw that, and again, it's from quite a distance, but they saw that, and they, they found him. Uh, and they, they took his camera, they looked all over through it, they checked him over, tried to see what was going on, and I remember him quite excitedly telling us about all of that, and he was worried the picture wouldn't come out because they opened up his camera and exposed the film, uh, but he does have a picture that, that proves all of it, but I share all that to say that never in history has there been someone more approachable than the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't have a secret service around him. He has no armed guards around him to search and investigate and to push you away if you, if you don't quite match up. It seems the hem of his garment was always within reach as you read the Gospels. It, it seems he was always within reach of the sick and his ear always was open to their cries and he regularly ate and drank with outcasts, publicans and sinners. He, he allowed a fallen woman to weep over him, over his feet and to dry his feet with her hair. Do you see how the manger foreshadows all of this? Do you see how the manger foreshadows and teaches that Jesus is an approachable Savior? The manger warmly invites us, consider this wonder of wonders, that, that he who holds all the stars in his hands and has named them is now lying in a manger. And you can now come to him and approach him. You can take him into your life. And it's inviting you, will you not come to him with all of your sins and lay them at his feet and be forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness? There was a time in, in Jesus' earthly ministry when some of his disciples actually tried to bar people from coming to him. If you remember that, they, they shout, stop bringing your children, stop bringing your babies here to him. And Jesus strongly rebukes his disciples for saying that. And sadly, I know there are many today still trying to erect barriers preventing people from coming to Jesus. You must come to Jesus via bishop. You need to pray Hail Mary 50 times. Uh, you, you, your good has to outweigh your bad. You must clean yourself up first or, or Jesus will have none of it. Clean yourself up first. Think about that. That's ridiculous. Jesus was born in a dirty, smelly manger so that you might know you can come to him with all of your filthiness, all of your sin and wickedness and rebellion and unrighteousness, and he will save you. He will redeem you. Why is Jesus in an animal feeding trough? It points to your radical need. It shows us how, how there's something very, very wrong with us. The, the animal trough points to the fact that we are in need of a deep fix. It points to our great sinfulness. The animal trough points how spiritually destitute and poor we really are. Make no mistake about it. Christmas is necessary because you and I are sinners. We are sinful sinners. But also make no mistake about this. The manger is crying out to you. Come to Jesus. Just as you are with all of your sin, Come to Jesus. Come to him and be saved. He is approachable. He welcomes you. He is inviting you to himself, even now, as these words come out of my mouth. No one is excluded from the invitation. All are welcome. All are invited. Indeed, all are commanded to repent, to turn from your sin. And place your faith and trust 
in this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, all are invited, no one is excluded, but only those who come, only those who repent, only those who humble themselves and come to Jesus will know his forgiveness and his salvation. Won't you come to Jesus right now and be cleansed of your sin and be made righteous, declared righteous by faith and faith alone? Well, the last uh, truth that I want to bring out about the animal trough this morning is that the animal trough not only prepares the way and shows how Jesus is the way, uh, but it also shows the way. The animal trough foreshadows what is required to follow Jesus, and you need to know that in following Jesus, it isn't easy. The manger says to you, if you're looking for your best life now, if you're looking for money and possessions and, and fame and fortune and luxury and status, then don't follow Jesus. If you want your best life now, don't follow Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, there's going to be nothing easy about it. There's going to be nothing glamorous about it. Like Jesus, you will often be despised and you will often be rejected. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross, does that sound easy to bear your own cross? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's Jesus in Luke 14, verse 27. He also said just a few verses later in Luke 14, verse 33, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So what is Jesus calling us to? If you're going to follow him, what is, it, what is required to follow Jesus? He is calling you to walk the Calvary road with him. He says in John chapter 15, verse 20, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The call to follow Jesus is costly. It's hard. It's difficult. Like Jesus, in order to follow Jesus, in order to walk this hard road of discipleship, you must be humble. You must humble yourself. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And scriptures say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, that we are to have the mind of Christ. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind? The mind that did nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility counted others as more significant. What mind? The mind that humbled himself uh, to become obedient to the point of death, even the humiliating, shameful death on a cross. That mind, that kind of humility is what Jesus calls us to if you will follow him. Humility is what is required if you're going to follow Jesus. It takes humility to confess that apart from Jesus Christ, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It takes humility to come to Jesus. It takes humility to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Where do you get this kind of humility from? Well, I think a great way to begin to, to 
to have this kind of humility is you think about the manger and you see your Savior who left all the glory and humbled himself to be born in an animal trough. It starts there. Knowing that Jesus made himself nothing, swaddled in rags, nowhere to lay his head, he was acquainted with griefs, he was numbered among transgressors, he had sin laid upon him on the cross. That's the most amazing humility that ever was. The truth of the manger and its connection to the cross should make you the most humble person in the world. A prideful Christian is an oxymoron. Pride has no place in Christianity, no place in your life. So following Jesus is hard. It's costly. It requires massive amounts of humility. The humility comes as we ponder the manger and its connection to the cross. But if all of that sounds like too much, then I just, just would remind you that Jesus has already shown us the way. That's the first point, right? Jesus prepared the way. Jesus has walked our hard roads. He knows our struggles. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows all about you. There's no heartache in which his heart also has not broken. There are no tears that he has not cried. There's no suffering that he has not suffered. There's no sorrow or frustration or disappointment or despair that he has not experienced. Jesus has walked that road. He has prepared the way for you. And that means that though the hard road is hard, Jesus is with you and he is for you. That means that when we pray for help, because prayer is a great form of humility, Prayer is admitting and confessing, I can't do this on my own. I'm helpless. I'm powerless. I need God's help. And so as Christians, we must pray much. And we don't pray to a Savior who is indifferent. As we walk this hard road, we can cry out to Jesus saying, Jesus, you know all about me. You are the lover of my soul. And you know my trial. You know my heartache. You know my tears. Jesus, stand by me and strengthen me. Revive me. Give me the grace that I need to meet my trials here. Strengthen me to walk the walk, to walk this hard road uh, that is mine as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope I have not upset you too much. Uh, about the nativity. I especially hope that by God's grace uh, your eyes have been opened to see the significance of, of the manger, of the feeding trough, and how it really is this amazing picture of the gospel and this amazing picture of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you can see and understand this morning that the manger, the animal trough, is not meaningless and it's not inconsequential. The manger would teach us how Jesus saves us. He prepares the way by walking a hard road that led to his death for our sin on the cross. It shows us how Jesus was born in humility, only to die a humiliating death on the cross for our sin. 
It teaches us to praise him that he was swaddled in rags, swaddled in our filthy, unrighteous rags, that by faith in him we might be swaddled in his righteousness. The manger teaches us uh, who is invited to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't just prepare the way, but he, he is the way. He's, he's born in the manger, and he opens wide the door and is inviting all, regardless of race and ethnicity and status, and if you're poor or rich or, or any of that stuff, it doesn't matter. All are invited, all are welcome, but you must come. You must humble yourself and come to him, and he will save you from your unrighteousness. Do you know him? Have you trusted in him? And the manger also teaches us what it costs to follow Jesus. It's hard. It's not your best life now. So humble yourself, and God will give you grace. And follow the way, follow the footsteps that Jesus has prepared. Uh, look to him who has showed you the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the scriptures. Uh, we thank you for this text in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus and your plan and your purpose to have him born in the animal trough and all that that teaches us. And I pray for each one of us here this morning uh, that if there's anyone who has yet to know what it means to call upon you and be forgiven of their sin and to be declared righteous by you, Lord, I pray that right now, uh, you would give them no peace until they come to you with all their burden of sin, with all their anxieties, with all their heartaches and all their troubles, that, that Lord, that you would use this message to draw them to yourself, draw them to your Son. And Lord, we just praise you for your grace and mercy in, in providing salvation this way, freely offered to all. And Lord, for us who believe, I ask that you would help myself and each one of us here this morning to be humble to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, to clothe ourselves with all humility, that any pride that's in our heart, Lord, that by your Spirit you would search it out and help us to crush it and to kill it. Help us to have the mind of Christ and to consider others as more important than ourselves, to, to not do what we want to do or desire to do, but that we would do what you want us to do and what's for the best of, of your glory and the good of those around us. Uh, please teach us and help us to be humble. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.